0: My name is Pastor Rob, Pastor CB, yes, thank you, (laughs) that would be my wife. Uh, Pastor CB, praise the Lord, is getting to take a vacation this week, I'm so glad for him, and I'm very honored for the opportunity to be here to share the word with you all this morning. As is our custom, I have the Beacon Bible, uh, the best Bible in all the world in my opinion. Before we dig into that though, uh, I just want to highlight one of Shay's wonderful announcements. Give it up for Shay again, by the way, y'all. Isn't she great? I just love her. As she mentioned, uh, our summer baby dedications are coming up on the 20th, and today is your last opportunity to sign up for that. So procrastinate no longer, okay? Now is the time. Last chance. Going once, twice, and there it is. Last thing before we, uh, we dig in, I, I have a com- confession uh, to make to you. Um, a couple weeks ago, I had the great privilege to serve in our, our kids' ministry called Spark here. And uh, you know, as, as time went on, uh, throughout the service, uh, me and my fellow volunteers, we, we found ourselves I'm ashamed to say this we found ourselves looking at the clock. <laughs> uh, just wondering, you know, how much longer we had to, uh, to serve. And <laughs> and my, my brother in there with me, he said, he said, hey, Pastor Rob, you know, what time is it that we, we normally wrap up the service? He's like, is it 11.15, 11.20? And immediately I became overwhelmed with conviction that that was not when I finished preaching. It's usually a lot later. So today I'm gonna make it up to you, my friends. This one is for all of my homies in kids' ministry. <laughs> It's, it's going to be short and sweet, y'all, okay? I promise. <laughs> so without further ado, please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. I'll give you guys a second to get there. almost there one more second you got it all right Philippians 2 12 through 18 the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me today's message is entitled flashing lights let's pray heavenly father in jesus name god we thank you for this day the gift that it is we're so grateful uh, to really just be here with you god we know that you're with us always but we also know that you are especially present in the gathering of your people on sunday mornings and we feel your presence with us today God, we're so grateful just to be with you. Uh, And yet, Lord, we know that you never show up empty-handed. We know that you have something for us today, something to give us, something to bless us with. And so like Jacob, God, we want to stand here and cling to you until you bless us. Would you do that for us this morning? Would you bless us with your word as we hold fast to it, God? Please teach us. Please instruct us. We all so desperately need you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Years ago, I went to a uh, 4th of July barbecue in the Hollywood Hills of Los Angeles where I was living at the time. A not too uncommon occurrence in that season of my life. There's always a party somewhere in LA and I think I went to almost all of them at the time. (laughs) But while a common occurrence, there was something uncommon about that one. Something was gnawing at me that day, something on the inside. I became filled with a sense of something I cannot describe other than as dread. As I looked around this beautiful home filled with beautiful people, suddenly the debaucherous lifestyle that I had immersed myself in for years all of a sudden appeared horrifically ugly. Um, It was like being given eyes to see what my world really looked like spiritually. And it shook me. I mean, it shook me to my core. My friends went on from there to the club that night, and while I'd normally go with them, that night I went home instead. I couldn't really understand what was going on inside of me. All I really knew was all I wanted was the opposite of whatever it was that I'd experienced up there at that party. And so that night I went to bed, and the next morning I got up and I went to church. And what happened there that day changed my life. The message was Romans 5, 8, that God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And... As the pastor spoke, I, I I felt the Lord speaking directly to me. Yes, you, Robert, this is for you too. It's not just for them. It, it just like broke me, man. Like my eyes welled up with tears so heavy I could have just ugly cried right there during the message. And if you ever have that moment at church, like Jeff, you thought you were coming here for a baby dedication, and God was like, "Hi." <laughs> So I I held it in, though. I didn't let it go during the word. I waited until the music got loud again. Thank you, Pastor Ty. And I let it go. I let it all out. And I kid you not, I walked out of church that day a changed man. I never looked back to my former manner of life. Not even once. Not even once. Needless to say, my conversion was a dramatic one. Um, It was so dramatic that even though I wouldn't have said this out loud, I think I secretly kind of believed that my big struggles with sin were all behind me. But eventually I came to understand that while I had certainly experienced a new birth, which scripture refers to as being born again or born from above, well, I also came to learn that in spiritual birth, just like physical birth, one is born as a baby. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. Babies are cute, all right? That's why I've had so many of them. I love them, you know? They are cute. I mean, how cute was I, y'all? I mean, I really thought I wasn't going to struggle with sin anymore. Oh, right? It's like, come on now. Uh, But while they may be cute, um, (laughs) you know, God's will is that we not remain a baby uh, forever. Uh, And so eventually I came to realize that God's will for me, like any good parent, was to grow up into spiritual maturity, into spiritual adulthood, to become more like Jesus not just in my behavior, but in my very character. And um, painfully, <laughs> I began to realize this because God began to wean me off of the baby bottle of spiritual comfort bit by bit. And um, you know, as he did, I realized that even though I had been de- delivered decisively from my addictions, uh, I was still far from perfect. In fact, what I really began to see was the heart issues that had driven those addictive behaviors to begin with were still very much alive, very much present. Pride and self-centeredness were now manifesting in other ways. And so I did what came naturally. I tried harder. I tried as hard as I could just to do what the Bible said. But it seemed like the harder I tried, the worse things seemed to get. And that was frustrating with me. I'll be honest with you, I couldn't understand how somebody could want to do the right thing and still struggle so hard. I knew what it was to struggle with addiction and stumble, but I couldn't understand why it was so hard to grow when you really wanted to, you know. And it was actually this very text in Philippians that when I read it, things began to become clear. When I read, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, I realized that I'd been trying to work it out in my own strength, all the while wishing God would just work it out for me like he did with my conversion. But what God was saying was, let's work it out together. Let's work it out together. And what I learned was that spiritual growth isn't something that's entirely active, do your best and leave the rest to God, nor is it something that's entirely passive, let go and let God, instead it's, it's interactive, it's a relationship, and like any relationship in our lives, even our relationship with God takes effort. Now, that's a truth that's been largely lost on the evangelical church in the West, in part due to a functional misunderstanding of the doctrine that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Now, when we say grace alone, we mean that salvation is a free gift, an undeserved gift, precisely because none of us could ever earn it. Jesus came to save precisely because none of us could save ourselves. All of us, every single one of us is infected with the same disease. It's like the last James Bond movie, No Time to Die. I'll be honest with you, I did not like the ending, y'all, all right? In the process of trying to save the world, James Bond becomes infected with the very thing that he's trying to save everyone from, which is why he has to die in the end. Sorry if I spoiled that for anyone, but. <laughs> It's right there in the title, come on. <laughs> but that would be the world without Jesus, right? We just have to blow this thing up because we're hopeless apart from him. So salvation is a free gift because it had to be. That was the only way. Yet, it's a free gift that costs us everything. It costs us everything. So what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that while grace is opposed to earning, as we've already established, precisely because no one can earn it, at the same time, it is not opposed to effort. It's not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. (laughs) Mm. So (laughs) this is what it's like. Um, Can you imagine a billionaire giving you a blank check and telling you that you can make it out in any amount that you please? The only stipulation is you've got to do good with it. Now, this is a sheer gift of his grace, his generosity. You didn't do anything to deserve it or earn it. Can you imagine receiving such a gift and then going home, putting it in the drawer, never to touch it again? You never deposit it, you never cash it, you never spend any of it. That would be insane, right? Well, what's even more insane is to be forgiven by God, to be reconciled to him, and for that to be the end of it. Nah, you know, I'm not really interested in getting to know the eternal, infinite, all-wise, all-knowing, omnibenevolent God who is love, who created me with a specific purpose and plan for my life. You know, I think I'm just going to kick back and watch some Netflix till it's time to kick the bucket. Sounds good, Right? The travesty, right? Yet that's how many choose to think and to live. So what's the alternative? What is the effort that's to be made? Or to continue the analogy, how do we cash that check that God has given us? Well, in my opinion, some truths are better illustrated than explained. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there's a father and a son who run marathons together. Well, sort of. The son is actually a paraplegic. And when he was a little boy, he told his daddy that his dream was to run a race. And so his dad put him in a jogging stroller and ran one with him just to see what that would be like. And the boy loved it so much that they've been doing it for a lifetime. And the son, now an adult man, rides in an adult-sized jogging stroller while his father, the most jacked old man I've ever seen in my life, (laughs) pushes his son through some of the greatest marathons in the world. And when you see them, It's so clear who's running that race, the dad, right? But what you can't see is that it takes every bit of effort, every bit of strength that boy can muster just to get himself into that seat. And as far as he's concerned, it feels just like they're running that race together. You see, that's the picture that Paul is painting for us here in Philippians. You know, when he says, work out your own salvation for his God, who works in you. Our part isn't to try harder to be a good person. That would be like that paraplegic son trying to run the race. Instead, our part is to make every effort to get ourselves into that seat, into God's path, where he can have his way in and through us. That's why we come to church each Sunday. That's why we worship passionately in song and gather around the word. That's why we get together in small groups throughout the week and why we meditate on scripture and pray with honesty because these are the ways by which we open ourselves to God and receive from him the power to do that which we could never do in our own strength, namely the power to shine bright. Truly like flashing lights in this dark and dying world. In Matthew 5, speaking to the church, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So shine, so shine. After all, no one lights a light in order to cover it up, right? Instead, we place lights where they will illumine the most darkness. And why do we do that? Why do we do that? Is it not so that we can see where we are going? If there was nowhere to go, there'd be no need for light, now would there? But God, who is light, has revealed that we have somewhere to go, a place where we belong, a home with him. Paul, <laughs> now I mean, when we hear shine bright, um, we gotta understand that we're called to do so, not only because it glorifies God, but because it lights the way home for others, right? Now When we hear those words, shine bright. We may be tempted to think that we've got to do something big for the kingdom, something wild and crazy, like go on a missions trip to a foreign land or something like that. But Paul says, you don't have to do all that. If you want to shine bright, all you have to do is stop grumbling, complaining, and arguing right where you are, right where you are. Paul is making an appeal to unity in the church as the greatest witness to the power of the gospel. And that's because naturally the human will is completely self-interested. And so naturally any group of people, any given group of people will be divided and pulled in as many different directions as there are people in the group. The only thing in all the world with the power to truly unite and unify a plurality of human wills is the supremacy and singularity. Of God's will. That's why I always remind couples in marriage counseling if a husband and wife are divided, someone's not hearing from the Lord because God's will is always singular, leading to oneness. This is why in John 17, Jesus prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name that they may be one, even as we are one. Accordingly, Paul is addressing that which stands to threaten that oneness the most. The Greek word here for grumbling in verse 14 means behind the scenes talk, behind the scenes talk. Behind the scenes talk is rarely if ever good, now is it? That's because if we've got something good to say about someone, we want them to hear it most of the time, amen? Now what Paul is talking about here instead is the kind of negative, critical, acidic kind of complaining that undermines the very fabric of community. Have you ever been talked about behind your back before? It doesn't feel very good, does it? Even if it's just a little complaint, it still messes with you, right? Precisely because it was done in secret, it destroys trust and it leaves you wondering what else was said that you don't know about. And instead of helping you to move into relationship, into community, it makes you self-conscious and causes you to withdraw instead. How well do you think you can form a unified community of diverse people who mistrust one another and move away from each other? It's impossible. This is one of the reasons why I love this church. In all sincerity, I think this is a strength of beacons. I was on a Zoom call with some other pastors from different places recently, and the guy leading the call posed the question, you know, how many of us really go to churches that look like heaven's going to look right now? And i knew he was asking rhetorically so i didn't raise my hand but inside i was like i do my goodness when the pandemic hit and the whole world started dividing across every different kind of line there is lines we didn't even know there were before i praised god for this little beacon that he's lit here in denver because it is a real life example a testimony the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing in all the world with the power to unite human beings across every different kind of line there is, tribe, nation, race, ethnicity, gender, political persuasion. My God, I love this church. I love this church. But if I'm fully honest, speaking to you as one of your shepherds, I also see that we have some room for growth in this area. And from my vantage point, from where I'm standing, I see that that revolves around the pain point, the question well, what do I do when I have a legitimate complaint against somebody else in the church? What do I do when I've got a problem with a brother or a sister or someone sins against me? Is Jesus saying that I, I can't talk about that without being divisive? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He's just saying that the first person you need to talk to about it is them. In Matthew 18, he offers us his prescription for accountability in the life of the church. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Notice there's a tone, an attitude of love and unity in these words, evidenced by the fact that the goal is reconciliation, the regaining of your brother through his or her repentance. This stands in stark contrast to the divisive kind of attitude underlying the kind of grumbling, complaining, and arguing that Paul is addressing. Both Jesus and Paul are teaching that we must not give the devil one reason to tarnish our witness to the gospel. The Greek of the text literally says here, there ought be no blame, no flaw, no fault in the way that Christians speak to and about one another. The love and unity that are to characterize the way that God's family interacts with one another, seen even perhaps especially in the way that we hold one another accountable, is to be a light to those who don't yet believe. Because outside the church, relationships are nothing but flesh. Outside the church, relationships are crooked and twisted, as Paul says here. Because apart from the grace of God, that is all they have the potential to be. Inside the church, they're to be harmonious and unified. <clears throat> But if we're to live this out, if we are to answer the call to shine bright by being one, living as one, just as the Father and Son are one, if we are to fully walk that out in the way that Paul is suggesting here, he says that we're going to have to learn to hold fast to the word of life, which is Christ. God's word is the Bible. The Bible is God's word, and it is all All, every single bit of it from Genesis to Revelation, all about Jesus. Jesus rebuked the religious elites in his day for knowing the scriptures, what they said, but missing the whole point, which is him. God's word has the power to produce life in us, the life of Christ the kind of life that loves its neighbor as itself and loves God with all of its heart, soul, mind, and strength and therefore has unity and peace with his fellow man. Yet, if it's to have this kind of effect in our lives, we got to learn to interact with it in such a way that it leads us from the page into a personal relationship with him. The key here is consistency because consistency leads to constancy in our lives. Paul's word choice is specific. To hold fast is to hold on for dear life and to not let go. Sailors used to get these words tattooed across their knuckles because their ability to hold fast in the midst of a storm at sea was literally a matter of life and death. If that's not a picture of constancy, I don't know what is, to be honest with you. Now, I like to think that those knuckle tattoos served as a reminder to them to work on their grip strength consistently during calm seas so that when storms came, they were sure their grips would be marked by constancy during high seas. After all, how much is an acceptable amount of letting go of your lifetime during a storm at sea? None at all, right? Constancy is demanded, and so it is with our faith. So it is with our faith. And so we must learn to open ourselves to God's word on a consistent basis and then respond to God's word in repentance and faith. Every time the word shows us where we've missed the mark, where we're in sin, we're to turn around from that sin and back to obedience over and over again, as many times as it takes until that obedience becomes a constancy in our lives. In this way, Christians become freed up from a life of bondage to complaining and freed up for a life of service to proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. I bet you didn't know you were a preacher, did you? But you are. You are. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are called to preach the gospel. With your words, with your actions, with your relationships, with your whole life. And like any preacher worth his salt will tell you, that all begins with holding fast to the word of life. Are you living consistently for Jesus? Are you a student of his word? More than that, are you responding to his word? with the stuff of real relationship, a conversational prayer life, repentance from sin, and faithful obedience. Paul warns the Philippian church to make sure that they have not received the grace of God in vain, to make sure that they have not taken that check of God's grace and put it in the drawer never to touch it again. And in another letter of his, he encourages them to know that today is the day of God's favor. Now is the time of God's salvation. In other words, don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today because tomorrow is not guaranteed. My friends, let us not be like that man James described who saw himself in the mirror clearly and then turned away and forgot what he looked like. The only way we avoid doing that is by taking action now on what we have heard, being doers of the word and not hearers only. So let's cash that blank check of God's grace today. And in these closing moments of worship, let's come to the altar and do business with him with fear and trembling that we may leave here today changed different than when we came in truly that this beacon this little beacon in the city of denver may shine brighter than ever before let's pray father god in jesus name God, i trust that um You gave us a brief word today so that we could spend more time responding to it. And that's exactly what we want to do. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you that your grace abounds to sinners like us and that it is inexhaustible, that there is no limit to your grace, no limit to your mercy, no limit to your love. It truly is a blank check. And so Lord, in these closing moments, worship we truly do want to come and cash in receive from you all that we will need today to act upon your word undoubtedly you have shown each one of us something that we need to turn from and give back to you some place of greater obedience greater faithfulness greater devotion greater love greater worship perhaps even in our relationships lord you've convicted us that we are divided even if that's only in our hearts. So God, we ask that you would do a mighty work here. Pour out your spirit of love and unity and make us one. God, make us one in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, in our community groups, and right here in the whole gathering of the body. God, let us be one as you and your son are one. In Jesus' name we pray.